Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for the blessing and grace and mercy, Lord, which you shower upon us so lavishly. Lord God, thank you for the rains and the snow and the wind and the cold this last week. Lord God, thank you for the refreshing they bring to the earth, but also the the realization of how fragile we are, Lord, how much we need shelter and protection in the midst of the storms. We pray, Lord God, that as we come into this place today, that you would give us that shelter, that sanctuary, Lord God. May this place be a safe place for us to encounter you, Lord, and to be transformed. We pray that you would fill us with your word, fill us with your love, fill us with your peace and healing, and reveal yourself powerfully. Lord, give me your words and give us all your word to proclaim your goodness in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Morning. Morning. It's great to see you all today. Well, I brought with me a couple of handy-dandy magnets. Huh? Who else loves magnets? I can't get enough of magnets, right? They're one of those things that I, every time I touch one, I, I like pick it up and I'm sticking it to everything to see what it sticks to. And I don't know if you had those those times when you were a kid or maybe still now where you get a magnet or maybe a couple of them and you can scoot pieces of metal across the floor. Or maybe you had one of those little, it was like a piece of cardboard with a face and a plastic cover over it. You could like draw, like put a mustache on the guy and do his hair. And Did you have that thing? Oh, yeah, with the metal filings. What's that? Iron filings. Iron filings, yeah. Oh, so cool. But one of the things I really like about magnets is when you try to put the... Um, them together and they oppose each other, right? And they're pushing back on each other. And you're trying to, it's more, a lot more impressive with bigger magnets. These are not super complicated to overwhelm that force. But you get them closer and closer and then it tries to shift at the last minute. They feel slippery. I love that, right? It's so exciting. And then they would like flip around in your hand. Oh, so fun. That, that repulsive force of magnets, that, 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 um, I don't know what the opposite of a tractor beam is, right? The opposite of magnetism. Unmagnetism? Dismagnetism. Demagnetism. Anti-magnetism. Whoa, that's good. Anti-magnetism. That force, I think, that sometimes we experience that in our own lives too, right? It's that pushing away from something that we should be doing or ought to be doing. I think we see that in our Old Testament passage for today, that anti-magnetism, we'll coin this phrase. In the story of Jonah, uh, is obviously a story about Jonah and a whale or the big fish, right? Uh, and that is what we learn in Sunday school as kids, and it's a great story, it's a compelling story. But like most stories, there's the simple telling of the story, and then there's the story, Right? The story within or above or around the story, which is so much more complex, so much more dense, so much more compelling than just the simple Jonah got swallowed by a fish and went to Nineveh, right? Let me give you a little context. Around the time of Jonah, the Assyrian Empire, which is where Nineveh uh, was, uh, it's current modern day Mosul, Mosul, right? It's a nice place. 
Iraq, Mosul, Iraq. Anybody visit Mosul recently? No, rough place. Still is a rough place. And it was back then, too. Uh, Nineveh was at war with the Arameans and the Urartians. Right? Those Urartians, they were, or Urartians, they were all over the place. I don't even know who those guys are, but they sound impressive with that name. Uh, and famine was widespread. There were internal revolts. And apparently around this time of Jonah, there was even a, an eclipse of the sun, which had people freaked out, thinking the end was near. Things looked bad in Assyria. It was a rough time. And it would be another 50 years before Assyria kind of got its game in order, right? They, they put it together internally and figured out how to work together and united around a common purpose. And they celebrated that, that unity of Assyrians by going out and conquering Israel and Samaria in the year 722 BC. Now, Israel, on the other hand, during the time of Jonah, was it relative peace and prosperity? Things were going very well for it internally, except it was led by a succession of godless kings who continued to spiritually lead the nation off a cliff. And there we are. Given this context, the story begins with a call from God. This is not the first call from God story we've read in the last few weeks, is it? Right? This is the third in a row call from God. You had the Magi, you had Samuel, and now you have Jonah. And God tells Jonah in chapter 1 of the book of Jonah, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now Jonah, being the dutiful and faithful prophet, immediately heads to the coast and boards a boat going to not where? Not Not to Nineveh, that's right. Say, give me a ticket to not Nineveh, and he does. He starts heading to Tarshish. And he's, uh, you know, the world is a globe, so eventually he'll get there, go in that direction. But it's actually kind of, not exactly the opposite direction, but it's pretty much, I mean, you're not going to be heading anywhere near Nineveh if you go that way. Right? Because Nineveh from Israel was northeast, Tarshish was west. Right? And it would be difficult to take a boat to Nineveh since it was landlocked. But it's interesting. As Jonah gets on this boat and heads out to the west, he was hoping, according to Jonah, the book of Jonah, he was hoping to get away from the presence of the Lord. How far would he have to go to get away? can't, right? God is everywhere. And so Jonah, despite his um, brilliant plan to go the opposite way, was not going to be able to get away from the presence of the Lord. There's also another major flaw in Jonah's plan, right? Because who wants Jonah to go to Nineveh? God does, right? And who controls the wind and the waves? God does. And so what does God bring to that ship? Wind and waves, right? Wind and the waves. There's this massive storm. The ship is being tossed all over. Feels The sailors think the ship is going to be torn apart, torn to pieces. Interestingly, the sailors immediately call out to their gods. Immediately. They fall on their knees and call out to their gods. Right? They might be pagan sailors. They might be misguided in their faith. But they immediately turn in faith to their gods. And this is a continued theme throughout the book of Jonah, is that 
Faith shows up in the least expected places. And faithfulness, or faithlessness, shows up in the places where you would expect to see faith. Right? There's a strong satirical theme throughout the book of Jonah. And so they, they call it to their gods. They don't get an answer because the god of everything is bringing the storm upon them. And then they begin to throw everything overboard. Everything. All the cargo, all their livelihood, their hope of profit. It all is sacrificed with the hope that they will survive. And where's Jonah during all this? Sleeping. Sleeping. Down in the bottom of the ship. Sleeping. Catching some Z's. It's hard work running from God, you know? (laughs) Hard work. And so the captain of the ship goes down to Jonah and wakes him up. Wakes him up and tells Jonah to call out to his God. Do you see the irony there? Of a pagan ship captain coming to a prophet of the Lord and saying, Hey, can you pray? Start praying. We're all about to die. While they're waiting for Jonah to get on his praying game, the sailors, they cast lots to determine who is responsible for their problems. And what do the lots reveal? Jonah. The lots point out that Jonah is the cause of their problems. And so they ask Jonah, hey, Jonah, why is this happening? Why are you the one responsible for all this? And Jonah says, well, guys, it turns out that God wants me to go to Nineveh and to be his prophet there. And he's the God who controls the wind and the waves and the sea and the land and everything in them. And I'm running away from him. And the sailors are like, are you kidding me? And they say to him, what is this that you have done? Who has the conscience here? The sailors do, right? They're the ones who have this ethical framework that says you should not run from God when he tells you to do something. It's not Jonah. Jonah's not the one saying, I'm really sorry, guys. I should have done it, but I didn't. No, they're saying, Jonah, what have you done? Did you even consider this was a bad idea and it would hurt us in addition to you? And so Jonah tells them to throw him overboard. They don't want to do it. Why? Why don't they want to throw him overboard? What is? Yeah, right. You guys are doing much better than the nine o'clock. They said they didn't come up with it. They were like, they didn't come up with the answer that it's wrong to throw somebody overboard. So I'm not sailing with the nine o'clock people if I ever get on a boat. Right, they might say, like, at any point, like, this is ethically okay to throw people overboard. But it's wrong. It's wrong, and you don't want to upset God. He's already mad. You don't want to make him more mad. Right? So they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. They're sailors, not pirates. They don't have, like, a plank to make them walk. And so they fight the storm more. They, like, really lean into their oars, and they're trying to paddle out of it so that they can all get out safely. That's their goal. But the more they fight, the stronger the storm grows. The more they row, the stronger the wind. And so they call out to God. They say, oh, Lord. And here they're using the name that the Jews called God. They're using the holy name of God here. 
They're not talking about just some random God. They're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Israelites. They call out to him. These pagan sailors call out to him by name and say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. You see that ethical belief structure that they have? Like, thou shalt not murder. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And then they offer a sacrifice to God. And they toss Jonah over the side of the boat. And as soon as they do, Donna, 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 Donna. Right? The giant fish comes, the whale comes, and oh, swallows up Jonah. Right? And he goes on a three day, three night vacation. Three night, three day, all inclusive. Right? Uh, and it's there in the belly of the fish that Jonah prays. Jonah begins to pray. And we see, we sense that there's a slight change of heart there in Jonah. And then, and then in a beautiful passage, which I would love to see um, brought to the screen, the fish, the Lord commands the fish to vomit Jonah up onto the shore. I love it that he uses vomit. That's so great. I mean, he must have smelled horrible, right? At that point. Could you imagine? It's like that scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Han Solo says, I thought these things smelled bad on the outside. Can you imagine what a fish smells like on the inside? And then we get our passage, right? Because Jonah finally is dragging his um, fish stomach encrusted sandals across the desert to Nineveh. And the Lord says, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Right? Jonah gets two calls in this book. The first one that he denies, the second one that he finally listens to. And so Jonah does this. He goes into the vast city of Nineveh, a city that our passage tells us would take you three days to walk across. That's a big city. And he, he walks one day into it, and he begins to proclaim his message. And it is a profound message, deep, full of uh, great significance. Like he obviously has worked on this, crafting it so that it would have the perfect presentation. And his message is, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's it. That's his message. That's the big sermon. 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the simplest message I've ever heard. And yet the result is that people believe. Maybe I should shorten my sermons, right? Maybe this is like a tip. Preacher's tip. Go with the Jonah sermon. The result is that the people believe and they turn to God. The message doesn't even say turn to God, does it? It doesn't even say repent, sackcloth, ashes, all those things. No. It just says 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But the people, they seem to believe, these Ninevites seem to believe that the God of Israel is a God of mercy. And that if one turns to him in faith and repents, God will save them. Where'd they get that from? Doesn't sound like it came from Jonah. Yeah. And so... Um, and so they do, they believe sackcloth, ashes, fast, even the animals do it. And the king uh, gives an edict that everyone has to do this. I mean, they're all committed to 
repentance. And the result is, according to the passage, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, the stark reality is that Israel is when you juxtapose Israel and Nineveh. When the prophets came to Israel, the Israelites almost always just kind of brushed them off and thought, ah, yeah, that might be true, but it'll happen sometime in the future. Don't need to worry about it now. But the Ninevites listened, believed, and changed. Now, that would be a great place for the book of Jonah to end, wouldn't it? On the upswing, the Ninevites are all saved. Jonah's been faithful, proclaimed the message. But is that where the book ends? No, it sure does not. The next chapter begins in a hard place. Jonah is still there at Nineveh, and he is not happy. He is not happy at all that the Ninevites repented and that God forgave them. He is not happy. And he says to God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew they were going to repent and you were going to forgive them. I knew you were merciful and that's why I didn't want to go. I mean, the irony is that Jonah is living in mercy, right? He's the one who ran away from God and yet God brought him back. But he doesn't want to extend that to anybody else. Doesn't want anyone else to receive that mercy from God. He wants it just to be for him and his people. And then Jonah is sitting on top of this hill overlooking Nineveh. Apparently hoping that God will change his mind again and will call in the airstrike. Right? He's just hoping, hoping that the city will get destroyed. And that's how the story ends, with Jonah still angry, not caring for the lives of the more than 120,000 people of that city, not caring of the lives of the animals and all that that's in there, the art, the beauty, not caring about any of it. And he is so upset that he even wishes he would die. He's angry enough to die. So where does this take us? Because that's a pretty sad ending, right? a sad ending. Well, Jonah and the Ninevites, or at least Jonah toward the Ninevites, they're like two magnets, right? Jonah felt that oppositional force. He did not want to be any, like, to have anything to do with them. He didn't want to be anywhere near them. He didn't care about them, didn't want to be connected with them, didn't want to do ministry in them, didn't want to see them forgiven. He just wanted to push against them. But God was drawing him to them. God was drawing him to the Ninevites, but Jonah was resistant the whole way. Jonah was a mess. Selfish, petulant, vengeful, disobedient. Yet God used him to go and minister to the Ninevites. Why? I have no idea. I have no idea why God used Jonah. There probably had to be someone else in Israel who would have been willing to do it. With a kind heart. And a desire to serve. Maybe it was about maybe it was about God saying, It's not true of Exactly. That's right. God chose to use Jonah because God chose to use Jonah. And he carried out his perfect plan through a flawed, broken, faithless person. 
I don't want to be anything like Jonah. I mean, I want to do the work of God. I don't want God to work through me, but I don't want to be anything like Jonah. There's almost nothing redemptive about his life. Right? Crabby, smelling a fish, right? I don't want to be anything like him, but I fear I am. How about you? Sometimes I think I'm a person who sure does like to receive mercy. But I'm not always willing to give it. Right? Sometimes I'm a person who who doesn't want to do the work of God. Right? Because sometimes that work of God takes us places we don't really want to go. Or to people we don't necessarily want to go to. It's hard. It's hard. That's how we feel sometimes, isn't it? We're prejudiced people. We're selfish people. We're disobedient people. The reality is, is we need God like a magnet to flip us around. Right? So that no longer will we be pushing against the will of God, but we'll be drawn to it. We need God to give us new hearts. Because our old hearts just won't cut it. We can't lift ourselves up by our bootstraps out of this problem. We can't just change ourselves. We need God to change us, to break our hearts, to show us how merciful he is, how merciful he's been to us, and give us the desire and the willingness and the strength to extend mercy to others. We find ourselves living in a world that needs mercy. A world where hatred, where violence, where anger and judgment are are reigning supreme. We need mercy. And we need to be people of mercy. And we need God to make us those people. Let's pray. Lord God, We confess to you that despite the fact that we know what you call us to, we know your law, we know what sort of people you call us to be, Lord, that we fall short, that we fail. Lord God, we're selfish. We're mean. We want to hold on to your grace and not extend it to anyone else. Lord God, help us to love Help us to love as you love, Lord God, not with strings attached, but sacrificially. Help us, Lord God, to be people of peace, people of reconciliation, people who bring others together, Lord God, people who forgive. Help us, Lord God, to forgive and to love and to walk in mercy in this world. And we pray that you would do this great and mighty work Lord, in us and through us and give us willing hearts to be participants in it. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.